Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with content matter experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Deanna Moretz, and today we will be chatting with Rebecca Bartholomew, a current PGY2 ambulatory care pharmacy resident at Oregon Health Sciences University Family Medicine at Richmond in Portland, Oregon. Today, we will be chatting with Rebecca about the latest COVID-19 vaccine to obtain emergency use authorization, or EUA as it's known in shorter terms, the Johnson & Johnson's Janssen COVID-19 vaccine, and how this latest vaccine compares to Pfizer and Moderna's vaccines. Thanks for joining us today. So Rebecca, let's start with the basics. When did this latest vaccine obtain emergency use authorization and who was manufacturing it? Of course. Thank you so much for having me today, Deanna. So the Johnson & Johnson's Janssen COVID-19 vaccine, which is a bit of a mouthful, obtained its EUA on February 27th of this year, so 2021. And I wanted to give a little bit of background on why it has such a long name, the Johnson Johnson Janssen vaccine. And so to provide further context about that, the Johnson and Johnson company is a larger parent company of Janssen. So Johnson and Johnson produces other consumer health products such as skin products, medical devices like in orthopedics and pharmaceuticals. So Janssen is the pharmaceutical branch of Johnson and Johnson. And so that's why you might hear it referred to as both names. For the purposes of this podcast and for ease, I'm just going to refer to it as the J&J vaccine. And I also wanted to note that the J&J company is collaborating with another pharmaceutical company, Merck, so that they can produce more of the vaccine more quickly, which is really great from a perspective of health and that we will have more COVID vaccine available very quickly. And at the time of recording, so we are recording this on April 30th, 2021, J&J vaccine has been delivered across the United States with 18 million doses delivered and 8 million doses have been administered so far. And J&J is hoping to deliver even more, close to 100 million doses by the end of July 2021, so in the first half of the year. And so it's really exciting that this third vaccine is available. Yes, and thank you for that detail, because it is confusing. I've been calling it the Janssen vaccine, but I think J&J is appropriate, as long as we're all on the same page as to what vaccine we're referring to. Exactly. (laughs) The next question I have is, what is the vaccination schedule for this vaccine, and how does it differ from Pfizer and Moderna? That's a really great question, Deanna. So as everyone is aware, I'm sure by now, Both Pfizer and Moderna have a two-dose COVID vaccination schedule, with Pfizer giving one shot of 0.3 mLs per dose, 21 days apart. And Moderna is a two-dose series of 0.5 mLs, 28 days apart. What's nice about the J&J vaccine is it is a one-and-done, much like our flu shot every year. You give one shot, two weeks later, the patient is protected from COVID. And the dose for J&J is also 0.5 mLs. Right. And the Pfizer vaccine is the only one that's currently approved for use in 
patients that are 16 years and older, correct? Correct. Yes. The Pfizer vaccine is the only currently EUA vaccine that is approved in pediatric patients, specifically 16 and 17 year olds. All three vaccines are approved for 18 years and above. Great. So another thing that's different is the storage requirements. So can you give us a little bit of detail about what the requirements are for each vaccine and how they vary from manufacturer to manufacturer? Of course. And I think that is one of the most challenging things for pharmacists is all of these different vaccines have such drastically different storage requirements that I honestly have created a table for myself to keep it all straight because it is very different. So to paint a picture, so Pfizer is the one that has to be stored in the deep freeze. So the ultra low temperature freezer at negative 80 to negative 60 degrees Celsius. Once it arrives, it can be stored in a regular freezer for up to two weeks, but Pfizer is the special one that needs a deep freeze for long-term stability. Moderna, when it arrives to whatever vaccination site is using it, is also stored in a freezer at regular freezer temperatures of negative 25 degrees Celsius to negative 15 degrees Celsius. It can be stored in the refrigerator for up to 30 days and has good stability evidence at that time range. The J&J vaccine is one step further towards unfreezing, as I like to call it, and that it's actually stored in the refrigerator. And it specifically says in the prescribing information, do not freeze the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. It must be stored in the refrigerator at two to eight degrees Celsius. When you're using it, it can be stored at room temperature for up to 12 hours and unpunctured vials when stored in the fridge are good until the expiration date on the vial. Once punctured though and in use, it has to be used within six hours when stored in the fridge and within two hours when stored at the room temperature. And so a good practice that my clinical site has actually done with the J&J vaccine is you draw up your five doses because it's five doses per vial, and then you immediately put those syringes back in the fridge and then dole them out to the vaccinators at your vaccination clinic that way. That way they're good for six hours and they're stored in the fridge anyway. So that's really easy. That's great. Thank you for that overview because it is confusing the different storage requirements. You alluded to this a little bit, but how should this new vaccine be prepared and administered? And how does that differ from Moderna and Pfizer? Of course, excellent question as well, as that is a little different too. So to help paint that picture, Pfizer is the one that requires reconstitution and is a bit more complex in terms of its administration and preparation. I won't go into detail there, but all of the information on how to dilute and prepare Pfizer vaccine is available on the CDC and FDA website. Moderna and Johnson and Johnson vaccines are much easier than Pfizer in that you literally do a straight pull from the syringe. There's no preparation, there's no dilution, you just draw it straight from the vial. Moderna has 10 doses per vial, and as I mentioned earlier, the J&J vaccine has five doses per vial. So from a scheduling and preparation perspective for your vaccine clinics, J&J is a little bit easier because you don't have to worry about, oh no, I didn't use all of the doses from this vial because there's fewer doses per vial. 
The J&J vaccine, it is recommended, though, that before you start pulling doses from the vial, that you gently swirl the vial for up to 10 seconds so that you can make sure that it's mixed properly and you get consistent number of viral particles per dose. And as I mentioned, once punctured, good for six hours in the fridge, good for two hours at room temp. Fantastic. Thank you for that very detailed explanation. (laughs) Now, I know we don't have head-to-head trials between each of these vaccines, but can you comment on how the efficacy compares between each one of these vaccines? Of course. And so you're absolutely correct, Deanna, in that we don't have data directly comparing Pfizer to Moderna or Moderna to J&J or what have you. We only have data from the trials that are the particular vaccine in question compared to placebo. And that's how they get their EUA in the first place. So for I'll go through them one by one so that we can compare them together. So Pfizer did a phase one, two, and three trial all together with about 36,000 patients in one-to-one ratio vaccine to placebo. The primary outcome for that study was looking at the first COVID-19 occurrence of any severity. So they were just strictly looking for, did you get COVID, which was confirmed by a positive PCR test. In the vaccine arm, they had eight cases versus 162 cases in the placebo arm because they told all the patients, take all the precautions, wear masks, but go about your day-to-day life as you normally would, and we will just track COVID cases from there. So the eight versus 162 infections, or excuse me, vaccine per placebo led to a 95% efficacy rate, which is really, really good. For Moderna, we only looked at a phase three trial of about 28,000 patients, again, in a one-to-one ratio vaccine to placebo. Their outcome was very similar in that they were looking at first occurrence of any COVID-19 infection, again, confirmed by a positive PCR test. In the vaccine arm, they had 11 cases versus 185 cases in the placebo arm, which led to about a 94% efficacy rate. So clinically similar to Pfizer and probably not even statistically different if we did do a head-to-head comparison Moderna to Pfizer trial. Finally, of most interest, I'm sure, to our listeners today is the J&J vaccine trial. So this was a phase three trial that looked at about 39,000 patients, again, one-to-one ratio vaccine to placebo. Their primary outcome is very different, though, from Moderna and Pfizer in that they were looking at the first occurrence of specifically moderate to severe COVID infections. So they said for their trial, we don't care about the mild cases. Those people are very likely to survive. We only care about the moderate to severe COVID-19 infections. And they looked at infection rates at 14 days and at 28 days post-dose. As a reminder, the J&J vaccine is a one-and-done vaccine series. For 14-day efficacy, there were 116 cases in the vaccine arm compared to 348 in the placebo arm, and this has led to a 67% efficacy rate at 14 days. At 28 days, it's very similar, 66 as compared to 193, respectively, with a 66% efficacy rate. Now, some of our astute listeners might be noticing, oh my goodness, J&J is quote unquote worse than Moderna and Pfizer because the efficacy rate of a COVID-19 infection is less. 
However, I would like to point out again, they weren't looking at mild cases. So if they had looked at those, maybe we would see a higher efficacy rate. I also want to paint this in another light and another perspective and that the flu vaccine, which we recommend to patients every single year, is not even nearly as effective as the J&J vaccine. So for perspective, from 2009 to 2019, the yearly flu vaccine had an effectiveness rate of anywhere from 19 to 60%, so much less than the J&J vaccine. And in this last influenza season, 2019 to 2020, it was only 39% effective. And yet we still recommend to patients get your flu shot every year. So I feel like it's no different with the J&J vaccine still recommended for patients to receive, even if it has a quote, lower efficacy rate as compared to Pfizer and Moderna. I think one of the other differences too, Rebecca, is the J&J trials were being conducted in a geographic areas and during a time frame where the variants were beginning to emerge. And that may have impacted the efficacy rate as well. All three vaccines have been shown to be effective against the variants, but I think that may have been another confounder that wasn't really adjusted for in the clinical trials. I 100% agree. Great. So we talked about efficacy. The big topic that's on everybody's mind is how does safety compare among these three vaccines? Excellent question, and I'm really glad we're getting a chance to talk about this in real time. Again, the time of recording for this podcast is April 30th, so things might change by time listeners actually receive this information. But as it stands today, the safety between these three vaccines is a little different. So for all three of them, we expect injection site pain, fatigue, malaise, muscle pain, chills, generally a flu-like symptoms because the body is mounting a response to this immunization. And that's expected of any vaccine. And that's what we commonly tell all our patients. You won't feel good for the next one to two days, probably take some time off work if possible, and then you'll be fine. Hot topic right now is though for the J&J vaccine, this concern for thrombotic risk, specifically a cerebral venous sinus thrombosis or CVST, or as it's more commonly being referred to now, as we learned more, thrombosis, thrombocytopenia syndrome, or TTS. Both CVST and TTS are similar in their pathology to HIT, or heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. And what we've learned about these thrombotic, thrombocytopenic states with the J&J vaccine is that there appears to be some type of immunological reaction that is causing platelets to be used up quickly in the thrombosis, and then that is what's leading to the thrombocytopenia. And on April 13th, so about a month and a half after J&J received its EUA, the CDC recommended a pause of all J&J use because they were noticing these strokes are strange. We need to stop using the J&J vaccine until we figure out what's happening. And at the time that they called for that pause, they had six reported cases of TTS or specifically CVST at the time in about 6.8 million doses given so far. They did note at the time it was associated with thrombocytopenia and they wanted to investigate further. And they also wanted to disseminate the information that this pathology is similar to HIT, 
heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. So if you have a patient that tells you, I'm presenting with stroke-like symptoms and I had the J&J vaccine recently, you need to make sure to not use heparin because that could actually make the pathology worse and the stroke worse. And that's why the CDC called for this pause was this inordinary pathology and the risk of using heparin if people didn't know this was happening. 10 days later, on April 23rd, the CDC convened and the ACIP committee convened and said, okay, we recognize this is a concern, but go ahead and keep using the J&J vaccine because the risk of COVID infection and all of the complications, including death associated with getting COVID seems to be much less than the risk of thrombosis. So in essence, the benefits outweigh the risks. Continue using the J&J vaccine. And to date, there have been 15 total cases of TTS, which includes the original six in the United States so far. There does seem to be a higher risk in women, specifically aged less than 50, because we've noticed that the case per million rate in women less than 50 is seven per million doses versus greater than 50 years old, it's 0.9 cases per million. And so what the CDC and the FDA have recommended because of this is it's okay to use the J&J vaccine in this population, but you need to explain to them the warning signs of this thrombotic syndrome so that they can watch for it for the next two weeks. And specifically what you should tell patients is watch for shortness of breath, chest pain, leg swelling, persistent abdominal pain because some of the thromboses have been in the splenic and portal veins and severe persistent headache or blurred vision due to the stroke concern. And if patients have any of those, they need to go to the ER immediately and to tell the ER staff, I got the J&J vaccine. I won't go into detail about if you work in an emergency room setting or in a hospital setting on how to manage this disease state, but all I will say is that the American Society of Hematology has a really excellent guidance document about how to handle a patient presenting with this syndrome who's had the J&J vaccine. They walk you through what kind of tests to get, what kind of treatment to do, and so that's where I would tell our listeners to go is the American Society of Hematology. Very nice summary. Thank you, Rebecca. I know this is a concern that a lot of people have been addressing in their patients, especially with respect to vaccine hesitancy, which we seem to note is on the rise, especially as these negative outcomes are reported. I think it makes the general public a little bit more concerned about getting the vaccine. Another topic I think that is concerning to the general public is how are these vaccines different? Can you talk a little bit about how the mechanisms of action are different for each manufacturer? Of course, and I 100% agree to your point about vaccine hesitancy. And what I would recommend pharmacists and providers tell their patients is really emphasizing the rarity of this disease state. As I mentioned, it's about seven cases in a million doses. So that's a really low incidence rate. And that's what I've been emphasizing to my patients. With regards to your question about the mechanism of action or how these different vaccines are formulated, it's interesting how different it is. 
So the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, as I'm sure everyone's aware by this point, are what are called mRNA vaccines. So it is exactly what it sounds like. So instead of giving the patient a weakened virus, we are literally giving them mRNA or messenger RNA, which encodes for the spike protein of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And that spike protein is then created by our own cells, reading the mRNA and translating it into the spike protein. That is then presented on an antigen presenting cell, which is then picked up by the immune system and mounts a immunological response to the spike protein. And that's the protein that the SARS-CoV-2 virus uses to enter cells in the body. So by fighting the entry point, essentially, we are stopping the spread of COVID. The J&J vaccine is similar, but distinctly different because it is a more traditional immunization in that it has a weakened virus, but it's actually not the weakened COVID virus. It's a weakened adenovirus, which then houses DNA that encodes for the spike protein. So that works a little bit differently in that the weakened virus, the adenovirus that houses the DNA that encodes for the spike protein, is taken in by the body cells. The DNA is then read by our own equipment into mRNA and then essentially follows the same pathway. So it's one step back in the process of DNA to mRNA to protein. What's interesting about that though, is that the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is not currently in use in the United States, but is currently in the use in the United Kingdom, has a much more similar mechanism of action to J&J and that it's a weakened adenovirus with a DNA molecule that encodes for the spike protein. And the AstraZeneca vaccine, interestingly enough, is having the same thrombotic risk that the J&J vaccine is having. And so a lot of people are trying to connect the dots on what is it about this adenovirus vector that might be leading to this thrombotic risk. We still don't know the answer to that question, if it's a causation versus correlation issue, but it is interesting that they have this similar mechanism of action and this similar thrombotic risk. That was an excellent biochemistry review. Thank you for that, Rebecca. Of course. <laughs> I think our final, uh, we're coming up to our one of our final questions, but are there any contraindications or precautions for the use of these vaccines? Yes, so there are a few contraindications and warning and precautions for the three different vaccines. So both Pfizer and Moderna have polyethylene glycol as part of their inactive ingredients. And so if patients are allergic to polyethylene glycol, that is a hard stop contraindication to Pfizer and Moderna. However, those patients can still have J&J. On the flip side, J&J is formulated with polysorbates. And so if patients have an allergic reaction, documented anaphylactic allergy to polysorbate, that is a hard stop. You cannot have J&J, but you can have Pfizer or Moderna. So essentially the story with that is, is Pfizer and Moderna can be grouped essentially together and then J&J is off by itself. And if there's an allergy to one, they can have the other. In terms of warnings and precautions, it is still recommended that it's a precaution if, for example, with Pfizer and Moderna, if you're allergic to polysorbate, it's not a hard stop, but it is a precaution to watch them for longer after they receive the vaccine. And then it's the exact same story for J&J. If they have an allergy to polyethylene glycol, it's a precaution for J&J. 
Because of all this discussion with thrombosis and the CVST and TTS risk associated with J&J, it's not a hard stop contraindication, but it is a precaution with women less than 50. They can still receive the J&J vaccine, but the CDC does recommend counseling those patients about the thrombotic risk and offering to them a chance to get the other vaccines, Moderna or Pfizer, if possible. Expert opinion also recommends that if a patient has had HIT, so heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, or any other type of autoimmune-induced thrombotic state recently, so within the 90 to 180 days of vaccination, that they not get J&J due to the similar pathology. In terms of just general other thromboses, so VTE, if patients have antiphospholipid syndrome, factor V Leiden syndrome, that is a completely separate pathology than this TTS or CVST risk. And so those patients can receive J&J, no problem. Go ahead and give it to them. Those are great pearls to keep in mind. Thank you for that overview. Let's finish up with talking about what's on the horizon for all the different COVID-19 vaccines. Yes, so I do think that the horizon is looking bright and it's really exciting that these upcoming changes to look forward to. So let's talk about Pfizer and Moderna first since those are already in use. So Pfizer has finished their study of 12 to 15 year old patients and has already requested their EUA be modified so that they can start giving Pfizer vaccine to 12 to 15 year olds. So they requested that on April 9th. And then I think the CDC got derailed by all the thrombotic stuff with J&J. And so that was put on pause. But now that the J&J thrombotic risk has somewhat been dealt with, I imagine that the Pfizer request to be given to 12 to 15 year olds will be coming next. So keep an eye out for that. Pfizer is also having their trial in terms of six months to 11 year old patients. That is currently ongoing. And so hopefully we will receive information about that soon. For Moderna, they also have randomized control trials going for six months to 11 year old patients and 12 to 17 year old patients. Those trials are still ongoing, but I imagine that those will be finishing up soon and hopefully we can start using Moderna and Pfizer in younger patients, especially as people are raring to get their students back to school. I imagine that that will become of great interest to not just healthcare providers and pharmacists, but people in general in the country as well. I mentioned AstraZeneca earlier, so I do want to touch on that just a little bit. So AstraZeneca, as I mentioned, is not given EUA in the USA yet. They have completed their phase three trial in the United States, and they released initial results for that on March 25th, and they're reporting a 76% efficacy rate. We don't actually have that trial's data yet, but that is what their official press release on their website has listed. And they have already requested review from the CDC and the FDA for their EUA. So I imagine that that will also be coming soon. As just a quick preview of AstraZeneca, it is a two-dose series that is to be given four to 12 weeks apart. But interestingly, the World Health Organization actually recommends eight to 12 weeks apart because for whatever reason, they're showing a higher efficacy rate with a delayed second dose. So I imagine that that dosing recommendations will be similar if and when AstraZeneca receives its EUA in the U.S. 
And as I mentioned earlier, AstraZeneca is having this similar thrombotic risk as with J&J. &J. And so just wanted to highlight some of the data from the United Kingdom. So as of April 21st, the United Kingdom has seen 209 blood clots of this thrombotic TTS picture and 41 deaths. But for context, they've given 22 million doses. So that's about a 9.3 incidence per million rate. So again, low risk benefits likely outweigh the risks for AstraZeneca. So keep a lookout for these changes from Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca. And as I said, the horizon is bright, stick with it, and hopefully we can get through this together. That is a great way to end our podcast. I think that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Rebecca Bartholomew for joining us to discuss the latest developments on the COVID-19 vaccines. Very informational and very helpful. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's online resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as the Preceptor Toolkit, the Research Resource Center, clinical pharmacy resources, and more. Thanks again for tuning into this session of Hot Topics in Pharmacy, and we hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the ASHP podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.